Today's read, A Moment of Silence, Midnight Three by Sister Soldier, Chapter 23, Trust a Reflection. Should there be secrets between two comrades, between two Muslims, husband and wife, between two ninjas, two friends who share a great love and a rare loyalty, she asked me softly, speaking slowly and facing the fire. She had a small, quiet fire going in our backyard, as though she were camping in the woods. She wasn't camping, though or cooking she was burning the bloody cloth and bandages and each item that had been placed in the trash can in the upstairs bathroom one by one including the t-shirt and the hoodie i had worn the nine foot wall was completed it was dark out other than the stars in the sky and the allure of the crescent moon we had complete privacy the night was clear as often happens after a heavy rain all had been cleansed her eyes were filled with truth serum that's how it seemed look into them for more than a second and her eyes would suck the truth out of my soul this was our first time in more than 24 hours speaking face to face and alone she had been busy and quiet all day as usual but seemed strange if you knew her well i know her well She was waging her silent protest. Her lips were sealed, but her gestures were loud enough for me to feel and hear. It caused me to think hard all day as I carried out the various business tasks I was responsible for. Here's how it began. My eyes opened before sunrise. My chest ached from the stab wound inflicted the night before. It felt sore and tight from both the stabbing and the stitches. Instead of a shower, I was thinking I'd wash my body with a cloth so the stitches didn't get saturated and loosened. As I moved to turn sideways, I felt something. Akimi's erotic eyes opened at that exact moment. She looked at me the way anyone would after first being awakened and needing a few seconds to really see clearly She felt what I felt, I could tell. We sat up together. She swung aside the summer silk sheets. We looked down together. We looked at each other at the same time. We both looked perplexed. Then she smiled a curious smile. Our ankles were cuffed together. It was her right leg and my left. Her smile led me to believe that she had done this. Yet it wasn't her style. She was into complete freedom. She wanted me to be with her because I love her and not because I'm caught in a cage or trapped in a promise or going through the motions out of guilt or obligation. Even on our wedding day, she had said to me and my sensei had translated, a beautiful leopard is not beautiful in a cage. So even though I know Akimi desires for me to be close to her and glued to her body each night, and even though she falls asleep with her small hand wrapped around my mm, I knew handcuffs were the opposite of her way of love. 
There was only one other ninja in our house besides me. That girl downstairs, who's wicked with the knives and bows and arrows. The one who is trained, same as me, but fiercely feminine and immaculately designed like a flawless diamond. That same girl whose love is deeper than the crescent-shaped Mariana's Trench, the deepest point in the deepest ocean on earth. Although I did not understand her reasoning for cuffing us, she did it. I know. Akimi placed her hand between her thighs. She had to pee. Pregnancy had her peeing more than before. We maneuvered out of the bed, wobbling as we stood cuffed together, trying to balance. She laughed. I think she thought I'd cuffed her. Maybe she was enticed by it after all, since if she believed I had done it, it would probably also cause her to believe it was an expression of my love for her. On the toilet, we were side by side, except only she was on the actual seat. I was squatting beside her awkwardly, stuffed on an angle atop the bathtub. Her pee came splashing out at first, then she must have clamped her coochie muscles in nervousness. A second later, her pee trickled, stopped, and trickled once more until it dripped and was done. She looked at me. She and I had done all of the intimate things that sexual, sensual husbands and wives have done, yet we had never actually used the toilet together. Maybe we both thought that doing that would fuck up the fantasy a little. For us, the fantasy is a constant enticement, so she didn't do anything more than pee. She held back, and I just hoped that it was not uncomfortable or hurtful to her in any way. Then I peed. In the sink, she washed my hands and hers. Then she dried my hands and hers. In the mirror, she used her fingers to comb her hair. Pregnancy made her hair grow like crazy. It is deep black and long and silky. Her pretty fingers were gathering each strand. Her long fingernails, pregnancy also made them grow, were manicured nicely. On each finger, on each hand, she had designed a small pyramid and on top a clear coat of polish. I raised my hands to help her catch her hair and drop it into a slip knot the way she likes to wear it in the morning. But when I reached... I could feel the ache on my left side and shoulder from the wound and the stitches. So I gave her one hand and she used one hand. Together, we dropped the hair into a slip knot. She washed our bodies afterwards. It felt good. In our closet, we stood side by side. Up, she said. I lifted her by her waist. The cuffs crept up and buried into my calf. She was as high as the cuffs would allow her to go. From the shelf, she grabbed a t-shirt for me to wear and a tee for herself. She put mine on me carefully. She put hers on herself. She didn't need a boost to get my sweats. They were placed on the hangers after she or Uma or Chiasa washed them. She handed them to me. Then we both laughed at the realization that it would be impossible for me to put on any boxers or basketball shorts or pants because of the cuffs. With my right hand, I chose a throwback miniskirt for her single days and gave it to her. She couldn't wear it outside unless she rocked jeans beneath it, but she could pull it over her head to put it on and wear it comfortably in our house. 
in the hallway, we walked right into Uma. He jobbed up, dressed and ready to make the before sunrise Fajr prayer. My Umi looked at me. Her eyes were questioning why my lower body was naked beneath only a bath towel that my first wife had wrapped around my waist. Then Uma's eyes dropped down to my feet. Iwala, she said, finally observing the cuffs and the awkward way Akimi and I were standing, stuck together. In Arabic, she began her questioning. Of course, I never said what I knew, that Chiasa had done it. When Uma asked how I would make prayer like that, I invited her to make the prayer without me this time. I told her I was going downstairs to find the key for the lock. Instead of praying in the living room, she went back to her bedroom to make the prayer. Now, we were all three seated in the living room. Uma, Akimi, and I. Chiasa and Naja weren't home. We didn't panic, just waited. My second wife had been taking my little sister out for an early morning run every day, as though we lived in a harmless and safe city. Other than chasing Chiasa around a few blocks that surrounded our house, I didn't jog. Black men and running in the streets of New York? Wasn't it? Men know that. When the trigger-happy headhunters, also known as the NYPD, see any young black man running, they convict him in seconds of armed robbery in their minds and start gunning. To know that is not fear, it's common sense. Chiasa pushed through the door full energy and then stopped short upon seeing Uma. Assalamu alaikum, she said to Uma, and Obayukosamasu to Akini, and nothing to me. Naja followed her in. Chiasa walked away and directly into her first floor bedroom and closed the door behind her. I told you she was Waham, Naja said to Uma and me in Arabic. Uma laughed. I listened. When Naja then saw that Akimi and my ankles were cuffed together, she laughed and said, Yep, she got all that crazy stuff from the spy store last week. The spy store, I repeated. Yep, I didn't even know that spies had a place to go to buy those kinds of things. And if they are spies, why does the store sign say spy store like it's not supposed to be a secret? And the place is right next to other stores, so anyone can see you walk in there. So, if you're supposed to be a secret agent or something, everybody's going to know, Naja said, shrugging her little shoulders. Uma looked at me. Your wife bought a whole bunch of sneaky stuff in there. She bought those handcuffs you and Akimi are wearing on your ankles, and she bought a pen that writes but is really a tape recorder. And she must really want to record something because she bought a second tape recorder that fits into the palm of her hand. Wait till you see her watch. Don't worry about asking her what time it is because that thing is really a camera. I know because the man in the store was teaching her how everything worked. And you know, they just acted like I wasn't standing right there listening. Then at the cashier, she bought like six more little sneaky things. Naja reported in Arabic. One was a dog whistle. 
What is she by that for? Only dogs and cats could hear it, and we don't have any pets here. I asked her. She said she has really good hearing and could adjust the whistle slightly so that she could hear it like the cats and dogs do. I looked at Agimi. She was always fascinated when Uma, Naja, and I were having a long convo in the Arabic language. She would be watching our lips and tongues and teeth and swooning over the melody of our language. Aside from that, Akimi is not dumb. I'm sure that even if she didn't catch one word of our Arabic, she did catch that Naja was repeatedly calling Chiaz's name out as she explained her after-school trip to the spy store. Chiaza dashed out of her bedroom holding a towel, a washcloth, and her small straw basket of girl stuff and her clothes in her arms. In the downstairs bathroom, she closed the door behind herself. And that's not all, Naja continued. You are going to be late for school. Go upstairs and shower and dress for the prayer, Uma said to her. Can I just tell you one more thing, Naja asked politely, but I knew she was about to launch into some more mudslinging. Make it quick, Uma told her. You know my brother's second wife has been following me to school four days a week for two weeks. Well, yesterday, she caused some trouble in the school. Chiasa asked this one Nigerian girl and another girl from Somalia and the third one from Russia how they could recite their prayers in Arabic without knowing how to speak Arabic at all. So they each told her that they are required to learn to recite the prayers and pronounce the Arabic words, even though they do not understand them. Then your second wife told them the meaning of the Arabic words is so much more important than reciting something that you don't know or understand. Reciting without understanding would have no meaning to your hearts or in your mind or your soul. Naja mimicked. Uma's eyes widened. Then, this is the part that really caused a lot of trouble. Your wife told these girls in my class that she wrote her own prayer in English and that at least once a day out of her five prayers, she recites her own prayer. And it gives her the best feeling in her soul, Naja said. What did the teacher say, Uma asked. We were all at lunch, eating and talking. Chiasa was sitting with me and my friends, so the teacher didn't know at first. But then the Somali girl agreed with Chiasa. Later, she even said her prayers in her own language that she learned at her mosque before her family moved to America, instead of Arabic like we all do. When the teacher insisted that she recite in Arabic, the Somali girl told the teacher in front of our whole class that her prayers feel better in the Somali language. When we were getting on the bus to come home, we saw the teacher speaking to the Somali girl's mother. When Chiasa and I walked by, the teacher grabbed Chiasa and told her that she couldn't come back anymore if she interfered with the lessons. The teacher told Chiasa that students at Khadija's Islamic School for Girls will recite only in Arabic until they learn Arabic. Then she told Chiasa that she should learn to pray in Arabic also and that for her to say the prayers in English is no good. 
and she said if Chiasa said her prayers in English, she would always have an excuse not to learn Arabic and that she would have no way of knowing if Allah accepted her prayers because the Holy Quran was revealed in the Arabic language because it is the best and most perfect language. Arabic is not like any other language. It is not casual, my teacher, t- my teacher told your second wife. And then Naja was done telling and headed up the stairs, happy with herself. When Chiasa emerged from the bathroom, clean and dressed for the prayer, Akimi said something to her in Japanese. Chiasa responded softly. Then they were back and forth in their language. Seated beside Akimi, their dialogue looked friendly, but then again, the Japanese were the type who could say, I'm going to break your fucking neck softly and make it sound beautiful and polite. They were also the type who could maintain a game face through even the toughest confrontations. All I know is, Chiasa ended up walking the tiny key over to Akimi and placing it into Akimi's palm without glancing my way. After Fajr prayer, Chiasa was grinding out carrot juice in her juicer. Carrot juice, Chiasa once told me, is the best formula for vision. She explained that because carrots contain beta carotene, she could drink a glass of it and feel the effects on her body in general and her eyesight in particular immediately. Perhaps that is the reason she always has perfect vision and rarely overlooks even the smallest of things, even if they were well hidden. Whatever happened at Naja's school the day before, Giasa left the house with Naja and boarded the school bus with her the same as though nothing had ever changed. Akimi and Uma remained at home, working to complete orders for Uma's designs. The customer base had expanded wildly and now included even some Asian customers. The designs that Akimi drew were added to the catalog that Uma had already designed. Once Uma handmade all of the samples based on Akimi's new designs, a new market opened up for us. At the same time, Uma had gotten a big account from a woman who had chronic allergies. She'd had to actually donate all of her store-bought clothes, which she accumulated over the years, and start her wardrobe from scratch using organic fabrics only. 100% cottons and linens, no rayon, lycra, fake fillings, or chemically treated cloths. It was quite an expensive undertaking, with Uma Designs landing on the winning side. With her severe allergies, even the handling of the woman's fabrics mattered. She could not wear fabrics that had been stored in a drafty or contaminated factory, or thrown and transported into a soiled truck, even though they were boxed and packaged, or a vehicle that had previously transported any chemicals or bleaches or toxic cargo. The woman and her husband both had six-figure salaries and spared no expense in commissioning new non-hypoallergenic clothing. She said no matter what amounts of cash she had to pay Uma to produce her new fashions, the cost for organic hand-tailored clothing 
would never be comparable to the astronomical medical bills that she would have to pay if she had not made the complete fabric and lifestyle change. Out on the streets by 9 a.m., I made Uma Design deliveries. Afterwards, I went straight to scoring the right high-quality, low-cost, vintage clothing, kicks, and accessories to package for resale in Korea and Japan. On 23rd Street in Lower Manhattan on the west side, I looked up and saw on the theater marquee of the New York School of Visual Arts that they were featuring the following night an Arabic language foreign film. Also, the actors for the film would join the audience after the screening in a question and answer session. I thought, Alhamdulillah, I'll ask Uma for a date, just she and I for a change, like it used to be. I dress up dapper like my father would for her, and she would dress up too. I'd take her out for dinner to show my appreciation for her, to her, and a great thanks that she did not panic when she saw my blood spilling out of my chest. She burned the tip of her needle and even sterilized the thread, although she shed a few tears as she stitched, knowing that it caused me some pain and was probably trapped inside of her thoughts wondering who hated her son enough to have done this to him. Further, she may have been thinking thinking about what could have happened if the knife was pushed with greater force and the cut was three inches lower and into my heart or dug inches deeper than it was. She stopped the blood, cleaned the wound, stitched it up like it was fine fabric instead of skin and followed through until it was done. I called home to let Uma know two things. One, I would miss family dinner tonight because I was going to basketball practice. And two, to ask her out on a date. I heard in her voice that the date idea made her feel happy. The call helped her to control any worried thoughts she was having over me. She remained quiet about the fact that I was still going to practice with the injury. I knew without words that she thought I should rest and heal before I raced back into athletic mode. However, I'd given my word on making my best effort to show up to all remaining practices and games, so I did. I was excited to be back as a contender for the $10,000 purse in the Hustlers League, getting money playing ball, something that before marriage I would do every day for free. That was great for me. Business was sweet. I had sold in one month's time one machine to Cho, two machines to Chris's father, and 17 machines to Santiago. For buying in bulk, I got three new machines for myself at a cut rate. When Chiasa called and placed the orders, the Japanese company was astounded at what we had accomplished in a short period of time as their new customers. A few days later, the company owner contacted Chiasa and requested to meet with her boss. That, of course, was me. My second wife set an appointment to take place at a New York City office we never even knew they had since she first ordered the machines from their headquarters while we were still in Asia. I didn't want to be greedy, but I had big plans and babies on the way. Inshallah, I also had to show up for every practice so my teammates would look favorably on me once again 
and get comfortable enough for us to sweep the playoffs. As I approached my house at 11.15 p.m., I knew Akimi was awake and sketching. She had a bright white light shining through her curtains. The meaning was that she was drawing or sketching a masterpiece. Therefore, she preferred to be alone with her imagination, pencil, and paints. She and I signaled one another through her lighting choices. Red meant she had family matters happening on either the Japanese or Korean side. Green meant she needed to talk to me right away about business. Yellow meant young Naja, Uma, or Chiasa was in our bedroom. Blue was any emergency or sad or sick feeling. Purple was the color of love. I liked the colored light bulb system. Although both of us knew if either of us caught an urge or a strong feeling, we could come to one another without hesitation. Akimi does not approach me, however, when I am in Chiasa's bedroom or in Chiasa's energy, so to speak. She'll go in Chiasa's room if I'm not around and talk or read and chill with her. And Chiasa will go in Akimi's room just the same. I think Akimi does it that way for her own comfort. Our front and backyard are family spaces, especially on Sundays, which is our family day while living here in America. We all have something to do in the backyard, separately or together. Akimi lays facing the sky in her kaleidoscope colored hand crocheted hammock that Uma stitched and I built for her. Naja plays with the pogo stick I purchased for her or the hula hoop Akimi gifted her or jumps on the trampoline that Chiasa got her. Sometimes she swings in Akimi's swing or plants or picks or waters flowers with Uma. On the warm and loveliest days, Uma hangs washed sheets, silks, and linens on the clothing line I made for her, or sometimes she sits and enjoys being served, fruits or juices prepared by her daughters-in-law, or her favorite well-seasoned meats from her son. I rock the barbecue grill. However, routinely the backyard is Chiasa's territory because her window is the only bedroom window that faces it and also because she works out back there on a daily basis. While we were building the wall, when Chris and Amir were not around, she also would do her stretches, climb the scaffold, walk the deck railings, swing her sword, practice her martial arts, jump rope, do long jumps and leaps, and lie in the sun, browning her body or reading her books. One night, she was even out there on the deck, placing her hundreds of toy soldiers on a wooden platform and using them to reenact military formations from one of her many books. How a pretty girl was so fascinated with fighting and wars was something I did not understand. She loved history and reading nonfiction, but when it came to her own flesh and blood and the ones she held in her heart, she was soft, passionate, and protective. With the ones closest to her, she wanted peace. I knew that when I joined her at, a, at her little bonfire that night. I walked out onto the deck. I leaned over the railing and watched her facing the fire. She looked up at me, silenced. We were both just staring. My love for her gets caught in my throat, like I'm standing in nine feet of water not floating or swimming, 
just standing and drowning. Her eyes reveal how she melts at my black silhouette against the dark night. Still, this time, she wants me to come to her. I could resist, stay still and see how long it would take for her to be pulled and dragged by her own emotions right over to me. I give in because I'm so in love with her. Besides, I like the way the fire flickers across her face, the light dancing and illuminating pieces of her skin. Should there be secrets between two people who love each other deeply, she asked me softly. She had a small, quiet fire going in our backyard, burning the evidence, not knowing anything about the incident, but believing, as any ninja would, that evidence should be destroyed. The nine-foot wall was completed. It was dark. The night was clear, as often happens after a heavy rain. All had been cleansed. Other than the stars in the sky and the allure of the crescent moon, we had complete privacy. She was uncovered in the spring heat, her hair wild and everywhere. I walked from the deck and into the yard and stood behind her. She did not turn. I pulled her hair back and braided it into two long, thick, rope-like braids. Can't let your hair catch fire, I said. The first words I'd spoken to her in 27 and a half hours. I hugged her from behind, enjoying the hurt from my fresh injury, rejecting it. When you do things like that, how do you want me to react? She asked me. Like what? Like, touch me like that. So gently, and braid my hair. I kissed her neck and sucked it on a sensitive spot. My hands were traveling, caressing her shoulders and over her breasts. I gripped her waist, slid my right hand between her thighs and held it there, touching lightly. We have to get you to the doctor, I told her. Why, she asked. I'm so healthy. Because your coochie is fat, I said, squeezing it. I was smiling, but she couldn't see me because I was standing behind her. What? She had an outburst. Seriously, your coochie is fatter than it was before and sweeter than black cherries, I said matter-of-factly. I cannot believe you just said that, she said, bumping me backwards, then spinning around and fighting to hold in her laughter. So what's the doctor going to do, she asked. Well, you and I are going to go see her together. I'm going to tell her your symptoms. I'll say, Doctor, my wife's coochie is fatter, sweeter, and more juicy than anyone else's, I said in a serious tone. (laughs) Finally, Giasa laughed. Oh my God, she said, bending over with laughter. Then the doctor will say to me, Sir, your wife is pregnant. Her coochie is going to get even fatter. Stop, she fell out. I sat in the grass beside her. Is that what you think, she asked me? You think I'm pregnant? That's what I wish. Think I'm going to have to go in you again to be sure it comes true. She kissed me, her thick lips pressing against mine. Soon she was smooching all over my face, her eyes closed and her breathing picking up intensity. 
We were tugging and tugging at each other's clothes. My feeling towards her heated up so high, I pulled her out of her skirt, laid her down in the grass, rolled her panties down her thighs, and put my and put both my lips over her. She let loose sounds of extreme pleasure. Both of us forgot about our secret love, about being half nude in our backyard. Hotter than the fire she'd lit to burn the bandages, I was fucking her now, our bodies rolling in the grass and the soil, her pretty thighs pumping, her hips swinging, her pretty fingers hugging me tightly. I was sucking her breasts, making her so wild her braids were unraveling. We ended up more than a few feet away from where we started. She was sucking my throat until our bodies shook, erupted, and then collapsed comfortably on the earth. We were paused, just soaking in the feeling that was still moving in our hearts. Let's wash up and do it again, she said. I thought you were angry, I said, teasing her. I was, but I liked your apology. <laughs> oh, Allah, what a feeling. I love the way there was no fronting in her. If she feels good, she tells me and shows me. When she wants to kiss, she leaps on me. When she wants to, when she wants to fuck, she says, fuck me. When she feels hurt, she puts her words together nicely and says them softly. When anyone doubts her, she speaks her loyalty. Her heart is up front, and her thoughts, words, promises, and actions all match up. Truly, her humble brand of honesty knocks me off my feet. I washed her with the water hose. She seems to think it's her personal shower. She spread her pretty thighs and smiled down at me, pointing. Splash it here, she said. The water gushed in between her, clearing out her juices and mine, tickling her with the water pressure. Her pretty thighs were trembling from the coldness of the water temperature. I liked washing her feet. I liked her washing me from head to mouth to toes even more. I liked how happy she was and how easy it was for me to make her happy, even after her angry feeling. I just love her. I've never seen you dance, I said to her when the thought just dropped into my head. When I'm swinging my sword, I'm dancing, she said. Nah, I mean like hood dancing, body grinding, riding the beat of the music. It's an African thing. All African people can do it. Naturally, I was born in Japan, grew up there in the forest, she said, smiling a pure, pretty smile. Then I'll have to teach you. Are you going to take me to a party, she asked, excited. Yeah, right in your room, me and you and some music. That's not the same thing, she said, laughing. In Sudan, single college men and women can't even have a party. The police come in with sticks and whips and send everybody back to their families, I told her. Why? she exclaimed, like she couldn't believe it. It's an Islamic country. Islam is the wisest faith. It takes into account human nature and instinct in every instance, I explained. Meaning? Meaning, if a group of young males and females meet up in the dark in a room where the music is playing, if the beat is powerful, 
naturally bodies start to bounce and move. If I see something I like and a female sees something she likes, next thing you know, we're up on each other. And if we are not married, we will most likely still end up fucking because the mood is so intense. And because it's a natural feeling, you already know unmarried sex is forbidden in Islam. Hmm, she said. But whips and sticks, do you think the same thing happens at every party just like that? As long as there is one female or more and one male or more, it happens just like that, I assured her. Just look at what happened between you and me when we first met. Soon as we saw each other, we caught feelings. True, she said softly. We have feelings, but you didn't touch me. We didn't have sex. Right. But you kept trying to get me alone in the room, I said, teasing her with the truth. Oh, I did not, she shouted excitedly. Yes, you came to my hotel room, didn't you? You were offering me translation services. I saw those big, pretty eyes, and I thought I might lose my mind. It was hard every time it was just you and me in a room. But you resisted me, she said, until I married you. I had to. Now look at me. I can't keep off of you. And if someone tried to keep me off of you now, they would need a stick and a whip and a pistol, I said. She laughed hard, and I laughed too. Hope you know it doesn't matter what anyone says about you, how weird or unique or different you are. You are right here, I told her, and placed my hand over my heart, then grabbed and hugged her up. Come, let's go inside. What about the fire? What about our clothes, she asked. A careful reminder. I scooped up two fistfuls of soil and suffocated the small fire. She swiftly picked up each of our pieces of clothing and we headed into the house. second wife will hand you your first son she said I was sitting on her bedroom floor with my back against the wall she was sitting in my lap with her face against my chest right over my stab wound your first wife will have twin daughters inshallah I said wild thoughts were streaming through my mind now I know why any man would adore her get obsessed and do some real stupid shit to win her. I know that any man that has the pleasure to see and speak to her, to look into her eyes or experience her smile would fall for her. I know a man could lose his mind over her. I did. She felt so good to me, had me so open. I felt the heat of murder with the thought of anyone anywhere, anytime, trying to get at Chiasa. Word to mother, I feel murderous if any man even looks at her. I needed to admit that to myself. If I could lock her up and be the only one she talked to or ever saw, I would. But I know that's insane. It's a strong feeling, I told myself. It's something you have to manage, I told myself. Get some discipline. I scolded myself. 
What about the cuffs? I finally asked her. She exhaled. I don't like when you leave the house without seeing me, even if it's only for a few seconds. And I don't like when you keep secrets from me, she said softly. And I don't like when we pray separately. And I want to hear you call the Adan. I miss that, she confessed. Remember in Itawan, she asked me, referring to a section of Seoul, Korea, the mosque always had the call to prayer and we could hear it all around, outside, and in the open air. That was so nice, she said. You want me to say the call to prayer inside our house, I asked. Yes, she said, at least in the morning for Vajah, and then the last prayer of the night. I never heard you sing before, but your speaking voice is so nice. I know it would sound beautiful, you calling the prayer, and I bet... If Akimi could hear the call to prayer, it would bring her to her knees finally. That's what I love about our faith. It has everything anyone would need to hold their family together. And if we do what we are supposed to, the way we are supposed to do it, all of us will feel good. So you cuffed me to Akimi so that I wouldn't leave the house without you. But when I woke up, you were not in the house, I said. But you knew I was right around the corner with Naja, she said. When you leave sometimes, I don't see you for a long time, the whole day, most of the night, and that's okay. I just want that whenever we part from one another. You say jamata to me and then leave me with a nice massage. I smiled. Massage, I repeated. Where did you learn that word? You know I listen carefully. I might know about 30 Arabic words by now. And in Naja's school, there is this one teacher who every morning talks about her massage for the day. I love the sound of that word, she said. And jamata? That's Japanese. Just a cool way for young people to not say goodbye, which sounds so final. Instead, it's jamata, like I'll see you later. She smiled. I can hold on to a good feeling for days and nights and even more days. I can wait for you. I'm good for that, however long it takes. But if you leave without saying anything, without letting me know what's going on, and while keeping a whole bunch of secrets, that's no good for me. Then I'll be worrying the whole time. I need for you to take a few minutes and leave me with a good feeling before you go. Confide in me so I can hold on to that. A whole bunch of secrets, I repeated, what sounded like an exaggeration. Yes, she kissed me. A whole bunch of secrets. Like, what about your friends? What friends, I said. See, that's what I'm talking about. You said those guys in our backyard every day were workmen building a wall. You told Uma and Naja and Akimi and me not to come outside when they were here and not to interact with them at all. But it was obvious that they were your friends. My window faces the yard. I could see how you were with them. I could see your smile. I saw you lifting weights with the cement blocks, challenging them. I saw the three of you talking together and laughing and joking. I can tell when you love somebody. I can see it and feel it right away, she said. And who do I love, I asked her. Uma, first of all. 
and Akimi and Naja and those two friends who helped you build the wall, she said. Is there a reason you don't want your friends to know us? I was quiet, thinking about how to say the truth in a right way. You don't want me to train in your dojo, she asked. You won't tell me why my cousin Marcus called you. You went out in the night and came back with a stab wound. I would never have known if I didn't dig through the trash and see all of the bloody cotton, bandages, cloths, clothes, and used alcohol wipes. And even then, I still didn't know if it was you who got hurt. I worried about Akimi and the twins and Uma and Naja, but I realized pretty quickly that it had to be you from examining your clothes. I wondered where exactly on your body you were hurt until I felt your chest. I had no way of knowing why won't you let me fight with you against your enemies? Why didn't you let me comfort you, clean your wounds? When we first met, I introduced myself to you the most natural way I could. I introduced myself as Chiasa, the whole woman, not a half. So why not take all of me instead of a selected part here and there pieces, she asked me softly. I am a woman. I like to love and fight and fuck and read and learn and talk and earn and fly and ride and discover things that's my adventure are there parts of me that you want to erase i just hugged her and held her close for a while i'm a muslim man living in a foreign land i finally said directly into her ear It's not my women who I don't trust. It's this place. Should I tell you what I would do if I just acted on my instincts and my impulses? I wouldn't let you talk to any other men. I wouldn't let them see you. I wouldn't let you take pilot lessons with any other male students or teachers. I'd ask you to stay in the house when I go out and wait here till I get back. I wouldn't let you go anywhere unless I escorted you. I wouldn't let you work for anything, but I'd give you everything you needed and everything you wanted. I know you are trained in martial arts, but I don't want you to fight. I get tight if I think that you think I need help to conquer my enemies. I'll protect you, provide for you, love you. How does that make you feel? I asked her. It makes me feel really good. If that is your truth, I'm just happy you shared it with me, she said. And those two guys are my best friends. I do love them. But here is what you need to know about all men. If any man, relative, friend, or foe, sees another man having something too precious, genuine, beautiful, rare, he wants it for himself. As a Muslim man, I want my friends and brothers and all men to have good and true and beautiful things for themselves too, but none of them can touch mine. Each man has to earn his own wealth, whether it's women, land, gold, or money. That's the struggle each man has to wage. There are men who want the gifts that Allah provides, 
but who are unwilling to humble themselves in faith to receive the rewards. Men unwilling to strive, sacrifice, or limit themselves. Soon as they realize that there is some work or struggle involved, they turn away. But even after they turn away, they still want the wealth that Allah rewards to those who work and strive sincerely and who respect limits and walk the straight path. That's when there is war between men. Arigato gozaimasu, she said, thanking me in Japanese for what I asked her, for answering my questions, she said, and then she was silent. I knew it was because I did not speak about the stabbing. Men fight, expect that, and don't expect them to tell you about it. A real man keeps his women out of the realm of war. War is, br- war is brutal. Man's space. If a woman who a man really loves as deeply as I love you comes into the realm of war, she will cause that man who loves to become distracted from his target. Instead of finishing his battle, he will become preoccupied with her. Just the fact that she's there will add more fuel to his fury. He may even kill, ignoring other options because she is there. Her presence will make the war turn out differently than if it was just kept between men. If a man has to worry about protecting you while confronting or being attacked by his enemies, it gives his enemies the advantage, I said. You wouldn't want to be the reason your man gets murked simply because you believed that you were trying to help him fight his battles, would you? I asked her. Murked, she repeated. Murdered, I clarified. No, not at all, she said. Not murdered. That would be too harsh, she said softly. Don't worry about what Marcus said to me on the phone. Leave it between men. Even though I saw his karambit in your hiding space where you keep your guns. You want me to overlook it, she asked slowly and sweetly. His karambit, I repeated. It's a close combat blade. The handle fits snug in a fighter's fist. It's easy to conceal and the blade itself is curved. Like this, she said, drawing the shape of the blade on my skin with her fingertip. It's deadly. It belongs to Marcus. I've seen it in his collection before, but of course they make plenty of them, so maybe it's yours. Although this was my first time seeing you with it. Now I knew what I already knew. My second wife sees almost everything having anything to do with me. She went in she went in the ditch I dug, the box I built and buried to stash my heat, and I'm sure checking my stash tonight was not her first time doing it. She knew so much about me that I didn't voluntarily tell or show her. Yeah, overlook it, I told her solemnly. least I know that it wasn't Marcus or Marcus's blade that cut you. The way that weapon is curved, if an enemy swung down properly, it would have not only sliced open your chest, the hook may have even snatched out your heart. The cut you have is not so deep, she said, 
with the feeling of love streaming through her voice. The cut you have looks like it was done by a half-hearted fighter. Half-hearted fighter, I repeated. Yes, like a guy who wanted to make you hurt, but not enough to push the blade in forcefully. Like a fighter who was undecided, which is the worst kind of fighter. My sensei would say, this is a person who doesn't deserve the weapon he holds in his hand. My sensei would say that whoever did that had a weak mind. If his mind was strong, and if he was capable of making a decision and following through on what he decided, that guy would have never picked up the weapon in the first place. He would have figured out that he is afraid of the fight. He is afraid of killing and equally afraid of dying. And he lacks confidence in his victory. It would have been better for that kind of guy to just communicate and try to solve his disagreements with you. And Marcus has had military training. I don't think of him as a half-hearted fighter. Why would he fight you anyway? She asked naively, but still poking around for details. Oh, and I decided that he probably called you to make sure that we all show up at the Martha's Vineyard July 4th celebration. Vineyard, I repeated. Martha's Vineyard, it's in Massachusetts. You must have heard of it before, she asked softly. So you must have gone there before. Twice, she said, smiling. Once with Daddy. He was only able to come one time in the last ten years because he's always on duty. And the other time, I went with Aunt Tasha and all of my cousins. Uncle Clementine owns a pretty huge house on the vineyard. We are invited to stay with them for the weekend. And this year, July 4th, is on a Friday, so it's just perfect. If you'd like, we can go up on Thursday night and stay until Sunday, late afternoon. She looked up at me eagerly. Why would you think that I would know that place? Is it just because your aunt and uncle own property up there that I should have known about it? No, she laughed. It's because it's a famous place for African-Americans. African-American families vacation there, like especially the families of doctors and lawyers and judges and architects and engineers, executives, and you know, people who have professional practices and who own successful businesses. I caressed her. I already knew I would be playing in the championship game in Brooklyn on July 4th, not in a vineyard. I kissed her on her ear. I stroked her hair. I kissed her nose. I kissed her lips. I flipped her. I kissed her neck and caressed her butt cheeks. I played with her with my fingers from behind. She grinded. As I was stroking her, I was convinced that I was right in my stance with her. She's a woman. 100% emotion. She's naive. She thinks her father and her male cousins are nice guys. She didn't realize she was inviting me to stay in a house with a man who tried to stab me in the back. So of course, I should make all of the decisions and protect her. She is my love. I was caressing the back of her thighs. She was completely quiet except for her beautiful breathing. All of her curiosities and requests slipped away. As I pulled her into a new position so I could see her pretty face, 
Her cheeks were flushed, and her eyes were the eyes of a woman who would willingly obey. I was inhaling her scent, coconut skin, and olive oil sweat, lavender hair, and a clean-smelling Gucci. Oh, Allah. And the dojo, the same thing. Stay out of my training space. Don't make me break somebody's neck, I warned her. Is there anything that women can do in your mind? She asked me softly, staring down at her own feet. Women can do everything, I said. But women should do it among women and men among men. If you want to be a doctor, be a doctor for hundreds of women. Do you think I would take you to a male gynecologist or a male obstetrician? No, I told her. I wouldn't. That's how it is back home. The men marry and love the women, protect and provide for their women and children. The men work And the women work also in separate realms. Even the ones who have college degrees and powerful professions. Uma had her own business in Sudan. Same as she has one here in America. She had many women working for her on our estate, but only women. She dressed so many women of the Sudan with her fabrics and fashions and designs. When she made clothing for men, she spoke to them through their wives or their female servants. I like that, Chiasa said, surprising me. I would think that it was really too much if you thought that women couldn't do anything. You are just saying that we should open businesses for other women and with other women and not interact with men who are not our husbands or brothers or sons or cousins, like family, right? She was right, but her cousin Marcus came to mind and that made me pause. Right, I said, but you know, in Sudan, some cousins can and do marry one another. It's the same in other Islamic countries as well. No way, she said. I was glad to hear her feeling about it leap out like that. Seriously, sometimes two cousins have been promised to one another in marriage from early on. It could be an arrangement made by their parents or even between themselves because they spent so much time together, they just naturally became attracted. That would be weird. I couldn't imagine having to marry Marcus or Xavier or any one of my cousins. I mean, they all have known me since birth. We are related by blood. I don't look at them that way, she said. What way, I asked. The way I look at you, she kissed me. There you go, I pulled back, trying to distract me with those pretty lips. I'm not, she jumped back, smiling. I just looked at her. Don't stare at me like that, she said. Why not, I asked her. It makes me crazy. It gets me all turned on. Tell me your secrets, I said. I was hoping she didn't have any secrets. It was 2 a.m. then. We were naked beneath the sheets in her darkened room. I'm not going to lie and say that I don't have any secrets, but I just hope that if I tell you mine, you won't get angry about any of them and that you'll always trust me, she said softly. I won't get angry. I know you wouldn't do anything that you knew would make me angry. Well, my father, 
has given me a bank account with 20,000 American dollars in it, she said, but he says that it's not the birthday present for my birthday in a few weeks. He says it's for me to use for college in September, an education fund. Did you ask him for money? I asked her. Not at all. He said he had been saving it up for me since birth, little by little, and that he would provide a portion of it at the start of each college school year. I never knew anything about it. Right before you and I married, I always worked really hard to make money to pay for my flight courses. But now that daddy wants me to go to a four-year college and to become an aeronautical engineer, not just attend a flight school, that's why he sent the money. Anything else? I asked, avoiding reacting one way or the other. And Aunt Tasha scheduled an appointment for me at her gynecologist. She wanted me to get on birth control. I told her nicely that it was not what we wanted. She also offered me to use the ground floor apartment in another brownstone she owns in Harlem. She said, I felt heated but remained quiet. But I told Aunt Tasha, no thank you, that I am happy living here with my husband and his family. So she said for my birthday, she would gift me two memberships in their health club It's really nice. I think you would like it. And that's a place where the male and female facility is separate. I can work out there. And it wouldn't be so bad that I don't have an all-girl New York dojo to train in just yet. And what else, I asked. Um, well, you know, I've been going to the main New York Public Library, the really nice one. And I've been reading all of these books that I would never have been able to get, say, in a little local bookstore. Well, I've decided to write a book about my life. All 16 years of it, I asked her calmly. Come on, take me seriously, really. I'm about to turn 17. I definitely take you seriously. Okay, listen to my title, she said excited. The name of my book is My Shahada. I like that, I admitted. On my book cover, there's going to be a sword, a star, and a crescent moon, not just any kind. I'll ask Uma and Akimi to design it for me perfectly. And I came up with the idea because every book that I find about Islam, or about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, or about the times when the Prophet was alive and among his friends and companions, they were always books written by men. I thought to myself, Wouldn't it be awesome if Prophet Muhammad's wives would have authored books? I would love to have been able to read his first wife, Khadijah's book. I've read two books about her so far. They were both written by men. It sounded and read and felt like they were written by men. I mean, a woman would express things differently. And she wouldn't forget to include certain things like her true feelings. And men don't have the same thoughts and feelings and experiences as women do. What if Khadijah had written a book and inside of it she also spoke about how she saw and experienced the prophet? Peace be upon him. That would be awesome. That would be something only she could do. A story only she could tell because they shared a closeness that no other person shared, especially not with the prophet. What do you think? She asked me. Sounds good, even though you are not married to a prophet, but an ordinary Muslim man. Not a prophet, true, 
but definitely not ordinary. And my Shahada is not mainly about our marriage. It is about my adventure from young girl to young Muslim woman and of all of the incredible places, things, people, and events that includes. Do it. You can write in the house or in a bookstore or library. I'll drop you off and pick you up when you're finished. Is that the only reason you agree? Because you'll know where I am and it's work that I can do also at home. Not the only reason, but definitely important reasons. Just remember, when you write about Islam, you have to be very careful. Believers worldwide, we take it very seriously, and for most, it's passionately personal. So give each word some thought before you write it on the paper. Do good research. I know you will. Naja told me what happened at her school about you writing your own prayer, I said. Do you think I was wrong? She asked me. Nah, how could it be wrong for you to say a prayer in the language of your soul and what human could judge the word you speak in prayer to Allah? I do think it is important for Muslims to learn Arabic though. I also know that there is a definite way of making salat and then there is a way to make supplication. Supplication? Muslims, all around the world, we make our prayers a specific way, with specific movements and in a specific language, but we can all also offer a prayer about a certain feeling or a burden or desire or challenge or even a wrongdoing in the language of our heart and from our soul or mind to Allah. That's called supplication. When we do, we pray also that our supplication is accepted by Allah. Since Muslims believe that Allah is all-seeing and all-hearing and all-knowing, no one human can tell you that Allah doesn't understand your particular language or whether or not Allah accepts your supplication. That's between your soul and the one who created your soul, I believe. You are so good and so smart, she said in her sleepy voice, and then turned to face me. That's what's so cool about you. Tomorrow, I'm going to write down my prayer and show it to you, and I hope to record your voice calling me Azan. Is that okay, she asked. And is it okay that we speak about these kinds of things while we are like this, she said, referring to our nudity. For Muslims, Sex is not a dirty thing to feel guilty about. I'm your husband. You are my wife. We can speak about anything, and I am supposed to go in you. Repeatedly. Well, put me to sleep then, she said, kissing my chest. From now on, I'll consider your massage. I'll check you before I go out and make sure you feel good. So you can hold on to that feeling and wait till I come back to you. We slept. Chiasa's prayer. Dear Allah, the most high, the most gracious, the most compassionate. Dear Allah, the only, forever present, the only, all-knowing, the only, all-powerful. Dear Allah, the only one who is sufficient, the only one who is above 
need the only one whom every soul needs dear Allah creator of the sun and the moon and the stars of the planets and the universe within and beyond dear Allah creator and painter of the sky maker and mover of the mountains creator and stirrer of the oceans shaker of all worlds bringer of the waterfalls dear Allah the only immaculate expresser creator of the heartbeat the soul and the breath of life creator of the mind the memory and the imagination dear Allah creator of the earth the sand and the soil creator of the seeds and the roots the plants and the flowers the trees and the fruits the supreme healer dear Allah the life giver the life sustainer the owner the maker the designer of all souls dear Allah the one to whom all souls must return to answer for our living choices actions and deeds dear Allah above all dear Allah above any dear Allah who has no equals no partners and no children dear Allah maker of all souls of all men of all women of all angels and all prophets dear Allah author of the book of the right hand dear Allah master of our fate master of our destiny dear Allah master of the day of requital there is no God but Allah none is worthy of worship but Allah Allah is the only one whom I worship dear Allah I want to be good and not evil dear Allah I want to be true and not false dear Allah I want to live right and not wrong dear Allah I hope to become pleasing to Allah made pleasing by Allah inshallah Thank you.